What a blessing to have ears to hear spiritual truth. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given your church ears to hear and eyes to see spiritual things. And Lord, we pray that tonight you, well, let's just pray first. Can we all stand together and let's just pray for this message tonight? Because Jesus said, he that has ears to hear. What a blessing to have ears to hear spiritual truth. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given your church ears to hear and eyes to see spiritual things. And Lord, we pray that tonight you will just open our understanding and help us to grow from this series, from this book, from what the Holy Spirit put in the Song of Solomon. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us close. Can we just say, church, to the Lord right now, say, Lord, draw me close, closer than I've ever been. Make my walk more intimate with you than I've ever known. In the name of Jesus. That's the cry of the Song of Solomon. Come away, my beloved. Run after me. Follow after me. That's the call. And Lord, we pray that you will do it in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody in here ever been tested? If you have not been tested, come down here right now. I want you to lay hands on me. This is about an hour of testing in the Song of Solomon. We're about to see the Shulamite get tested in a way that she has not been tested before. Now, quickly, before you're seated, let me just remind you the main characters once again. The scenario is this. You have the Shulamite, and when you hear Shulamite, think church. Think you. Then you have Solomon. He's not a good guy in the Song of Solomon. hate to say it. He's the tempter. He's worldly. He's carnal. Tonight, we're going to see him get almost gross in his hitting on this woman. Then there is the shepherd. And when you hear shepherd, think great shepherd of the sheep, our shepherd. And then we're going to talk about the court women again. The court women are all throughout this book. The court women represent citizens of this world, worldly people who have no interest in the shepherd whatsoever. They are completely given away to Solomon, who is a picture of the tempter. And they don't understand the Shulamites' love for the shepherd. They just don't get it, okay? And the scenario is the Shulamite has been kidnapped away. We're going to see her talk about this tonight. She's been taken into Solomon's pavilion. She's being held captive. She's being sorely tested. And in the end, the shepherd's going to take her away. The whole thing is a picture of Christ and the church, okay? Solomon's pavilion is a picture of the world we live in. So having said that, you can turn to your neighbor and say, I think this is going to be good tonight, and then you can be seated. God bless you. Now, last time we ended with the Shulamite testifying of the greatness of her beloved shepherd to the court women. I mean, she gave a testimony of the beauty of the shepherd, the appeal of the shepherd, the attractiveness of the shepherd, and the whole thing is she's bragging on the shepherd, just like we ought to be bragging on our shepherd. 
The court women is the world. So she was testifying, witnessing to what she had found in the shepherd. And I'll tell you, church, we're not in a bubble. We're not in a subculture where we're in our little bubble here and the world's out there and never do the twain meet. We're supposed to take what happens here and build a bridge to out there and testify to the greatness of our shepherd. And as the weeks go by in our church, we're going to be doing that more and more. In November, we're standing with Billy Graham, who will be 95 years old. And we're going to reach out to the lost all over this area, this metroplex. We're going to be bragging on the shepherd a whole lot. So learn from this, okay? So this is, this is the Shulamite, a picture of the church. She's bragging on the shepherd. Now, she perfectly pictures how the church should witness of her great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. But now, in this portion of Song of Solomon, the Shulamite's about to experience the greatest testing of her life. And I want you to notice when it happened. Right when she was finished testifying of her shepherd, her beloved, the enemy struck. I learned a long time ago, fierce attack comes at one of two times, right before a great victory or right after a great victory. Well, hers came right after a great victory, testifying to these court women about the shepherd. Guess who shows up now in all of his pomp and splendor? Solomon, the tempter. He seems to have been moved to jealousy over her love for the shepherd. He heard about how she was bragging on him and being an ego tripper like he was. He couldn't stand that she was bragging on another man more than him. Okay? Without warning, he appears and he begins to court her aggressively. Now, I want you to notice the first thing he tries. We're going to read it in just a moment. But the first trick in his bag is flattery, flattery. We're going to see how first his flattery resounds, how it, how it reverberates and has impact, then how she rebuffs it, and then we're going to see how he resumes it. And remember, when we see the work of Solomon here and how he approaches her and attacks her to seduce her and tempt her, it is a great picture, and a true picture of the devil, Satan, our adversary, and how he comes against us. So he tempts her, she rebuffs it, but he doesn't give up easily. He comes back again. Now we must continue to remind ourselves that Solomon is not a type of Christ in this uh, song. Uh, the coarse, C-O-A-R-S-E, flatteries he uses are those of a seducer, not a savior. This is not a picture of Jesus, okay? His boast about the number of women he has already conquered is not the kind of boast that we would want to attribute to Jesus. He's like an athlete bragging on the number of women he's been with. That's not Jesus. Now, look what he says. He begins, and boy, he is pouring it on, folks. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 7. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. And you thought awesome was 21st century talk. He's like, you're awesome. Now look at verse 5. He gets me here. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. You want to say, please. Turn your eyes away. I can't take it. 
melodrama. Then here he goes. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Any woman in here ever been told her hair was like a flock of goats? <laughs> Just wanted to be sure. Now here he goes with her teeth again. I guess the way they complimented women in the Old Testament, we don't do now. Any of you ladies ever been told, hey, man, your teeth are something else? No way. But this is what he's doing. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. In other words, they're white and they're straight. Everyone bears twins and none is barren among them. In other words, you don't have any missing teeth. Thank you, Solomon. The more you talk, the more I'm blessed. Verse 7, like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Now, some of the things Solomon says are not inappropriate. What we just read, it's, not, it's kind of corny, but it's not inappropriate yet, okay? They are, in fact, similar to what the shepherd said to her. Now, I want you to catch this because he's echoing the words of the shepherd, her beloved. And that ought not surprise us. Why? Because the tempter is rarely original. He's rarely original. Most of what he promises us in the hour of temptation are cheap imitations of what the Lord offers his children. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't have anything that he made up. He, he copies Jesus and he copies God. Satan is more a copier than a creator. Now, I want to preach him down and preach Jesus up tonight. It's the truth. Uh, what Satan uses against you and me, he stole from God. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a masquerader. He's the great pretender. But very little that he says is original and very little that he says is new. The, the, the things that he defeats people with today were successful a thousand years ago with people. He doesn't need a new bag of tricks because the old one works just fine still. So on top of that, he repeats himself so that he really becomes stale and he becomes boring. You, you stop and think about how the enemy has tempted you throughout your life, and I guarantee if you stop and think about it, very little of it is new at all. It's Pete and repeat, 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 repeat. And as soon as he can decide and figure out that it doesn't work anymore, he might try something new then. But as for now, it's stale. C.S. Lewis says in his great book, The Screwtape Letters, that pleasure is God's invention, okay? Satan didn't make up pleasure. God did. And that all the tempter has to offer is a wretched and inferior substitute. That's it. Solomon describes the Shulamite as imperial in her beauty. He is bragging on her. He tells her that she had vanquished him devastated him, conquered him, and marched all over him. I can't even look you in the eye. Turn away. So the, flat, the flattery resounds. You can, you can feel the impact of it. He's pouring it on. He's using the best that he's got. He senses that she's slipping away. He knows of her bragging about her beloved shepherd. So he thinks, man, you know, Every other woman I've ever, ever gone after, it was no problem, no contest, no battle. It was easy. But this girl, this is the one that got away. This girl has something the others didn't have. And what is she a picture of? The church. 
See, when you're in the world and you don't know God, it says to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. You have such a hungry soul when you're in the world and don't know God that you will go to drugs, you will go to alcohol, you will go to endless illicit relationships. You will look here and look there and look everywhere and you can find some of the most wretched stuff, but it's sweet to a hungry soul. But when you know the Lord, the devil runs up against something that he's not used to. We are not an easy hit because we know something better than what the devil has to offer. We're not starving like the world. We don't have a lack of hope like the world. We're not looking for love in all the wrong places like the world because we have found the sweetest love available to mankind here or hereafter. And it's the love of the beloved shepherd. Okay? So he, he runs up against a problem with this Shulamite. Solomon's not used to this. And the devil runs up the same thing with you and me. Now, all this flattery is aimed at breaking her down. In the Proverbs, Solomon wrote about flattery, and he could well have aimed his words at himself. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. Flattery is very dangerous. Let's, let's read what he wrote, for instance, in Proverbs 26, 28. He said, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Now, think about that. Because a lot of us like to be flattered. But can I tell you something about flattery? Flattery is wrong because flattery is a lie. It's an embellishment. The person who flatters has a motive, an ulterior motive for flattering you. Let's look at another verse. Solomon, the flatterer, and Solomon wrote this. And again, quote, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. He's spreading a net. And when the Bible talks about a net, it's talking about a trap. So when flattery is used, it, it is with the intent of, of putting a trap in front of the person you're flattering because there's something you want from them and you're using flattery to get it. Okay? And we're all suckers for flattery. All of us are. Somebody comes along and brags on us and, and we're just, uh, immediately it weakens us. So Scripture advises to be very, very wise and cautious and discerning when somebody is really cranking the flattery up towards you. What are they after? Well, Solomon was after her, and he's flattering her. And by the way, flattery, another angle to it is this. Flattery usually focuses on what you and I didn't have anything to do with. For instance, she didn't give herself her looks. She was born with these looks. God gave her her looks. And all he's talking about is her looks. She didn't have anything to do with that. Complimenting somebody is, is, is saying, man, you did this well, that well. You really surpassed yourself in, in that arena. You did a great job. You have wonderful character. That's compliments. Flattery is when I'm out to get something from you, so I'm going to butter you up and melt you down and put a net under your feet so that you are so taken with what I'm saying, you give me what I want. And that's what he's doing. Flattery is praise designed to deceive you into doing what the flatterer wants you to do. You know, I read a story a while back. Uh, somebody had gone out and interviewed 
ladies of the night. Said, how, how do you do what you do? How do you get these men? Oh, that's easy. I just tell them something they want to hear. And men are just dumb and dumber <laughs> and don't realize there's a hook. Okay? Oh, you men say amen. You think you're a big hunk of burning love? Let me tell you, find somebody who loves you for you, okay? Not a flatterer. Now, it's a form of lying. Flattery is. It's a form of lying. But it is harder to detect and resist. Men love praise, so they're easily seduced by flattery. Here's flattery. It's poison in a spoonful of honey. That's flattery. So be smart. Be wise when it comes to flattery. Now, next... Oh, man, he assures her, you are first in my life. How many of you have ever heard that? Not only flattering her, but he wants to know, you are numero uno. Verse 8, he said, look what he says now. Man, okay, here's what he says. There's 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. He's bragging on his track record. The margin of the Companion Bible renders this phrase, I have three score queens, 60 queens. Now, let me, he's trying to win this girl. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's thinking. He says, he says man, uh, uh, you're beautiful, you're this, you're that, your hair like a flock of goats and all this other stuff. And then he says, let me tell you something. At home, I got 60 queens, 80 concubines. And virgins without number, you are lucky to even be in my train of sight. Stupid. <laughs> so we could put it this way. Sixty queens had Solomon, 80 concubines, and maidens without number. This is a revolting and an arrogant thing for him to say. But that's because he was arrogant and carnal and revolting. He almost wears a proud sneer, quote, he's like this, I got plenty of others, young lady. You clearly don't realize who you're talking to. That's the feel of it, okay? He's essentially telling her that even though he's got plenty of women waiting in the wings, she gets to be first, as if she's going to go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Out of hundreds of women, I get to be first. For how long? Solomon counted on his way to talk to her. This is his speech he thought ahead of time. He stopped at the number 140. And you, he tells her, can be number 141. <laughs> wow, what, what an honor. Come on, ladies, what an honor. What more could he do on his belt? 140, one more notch, and it's you, baby. You're number 141 until 142 comes along. The arrogance of the devil is all over this man. The devil would love to add the church to his own harem of the bound. Do you know that? Here's the application here. He's trying to seduce the Shulamite into his harem, the Shulamite's picture of the church. Don't you know the devil would love to win over the church? And when he wins over portions of the church, you know, they depart from the faith or put the word of God aside or go off into some kind of a backsliding condition. He, he loves to bring 
what used to be people that love the Lord into his harem. This is the picture. This is what we're seeing. This is what this book is about. The devil has a real celebration in hell. When he can get somebody who used to praise the Lord, live in the Word, pray, go to church, lift their hands, love Jesus, if he can lure them away into his harem and make them number 141, that's worth more to him than all the 140 because that was a Shulamite. Don't kid yourself. He's out after you every single day. He's out with the same message. You are really something. What are you doing wasting your time in this church? You are beautiful. You are handsome. You are gifted. You've got so much to offer to the world. How come you're not out partying and having fun and, and, and really experiencing the nightlife and all the things the world has to offer? You are being so wasted in the church, so wasted in this religion, so wasted in this fanaticism. Why don't you come away with me, my beloved? And he wants to make you number 141. Solomon is sounding like a man at an auction, putting in his bid for the Shulamite. And she can not only be first by count, but oh my, she can be first by contrast. In verse 9, he contrasts her. Look at this. My dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her, the favorite. And here again, we see Solomon copying the words of the shepherd. I want you to catch this. He's copying the words of the shepherd to the Shulamite, hope, hoping that she will hear the voice of the shepherd in him and be deceived to come to him. He so reminds her of the shepherd. Church, listen to me. The devil does the same thing. He comes to us and he, he's a masquerader. He's a liar. He is a pretender. He is a master at disguising who he is. He tries to get as close to the voice of the Lord as he can to lure us away to him. And what appeals to us is he sounds like our shepherd. He, he had said to her, the, the, the shepherd had said to her, open to me my dove, my undefiled. What did Solomon say at the beginning of verse 9? Nine, my dove, my perfect one. What had the shepherd said to her? Open to me my dove, my undefiled. Do you see the similarity? He is literally mimicking the shepherd to try to steal her away. Solomon stole the same language to hopefully endear him to her. This is what the cults do. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they all try to sound like the Lord. They try to sound like Jesus. They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we believe in Jesus. And, and they say things. That they'll quote the Bible. Listen, the devil will quote the Bible. The devil knows the Bible better than a lot of Christians do. He'll quote that Bible. What did he say to Jesus? It is written, it is written, it is written. The devil said that to Jesus. And, and the cults, they, they do this very thing. They echo the words of Christ. There's a hook in their message. But if you don't know your Bible well enough, you will not see the hook. The cults do the same thing. They borrow from the words of Jesus to lure you off into the net they are spreading for your feet. 
He's trying to make her feel special, special above all others, unparalleled. There's no one like you, my dove, my love, my undefiled, my perfect one. Satan does the same thing with God's children as well as with the lost. He promises, look, look what he promises, love, success, peace, fulfillment. Just like Jesus, he gets right there. The wheats grow up with the tares. The tares grow up with the wheat, right next to the wheat. And until a tear is full grown, it looks exactly like wheat. You can't tell the difference until they are full grown. The tares right next to the wheat. So the enemy, what I'm trying to get over tonight is he's very crafty, He's a ventriloquist. He, he, he throws his voice. He, he tries to disguise his voice like the voice of the master Jesus. And he's very, very good at it. His temptations are custom designed to make us feel like his offer is just for us. Unique because we are first. But it's all a lie by the chief of liars. His temptations always lead to ruin. Always. Then Solomon tells her she's first by confession. Same verse, second half of the verse. The daughters, I'm, I'm quoting it now, the daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who's he talking about? The court women. The ones who are already ensnared by Solomon. They're already trapped. They're already in his pavilion, and they're already sold out to him. So, so what is... Solomon telling the Shulamite, he's saying, even they admit you are beautiful beyond them. You are first by comparison. He makes it sound as if even the court women have gotten over their jealousy of her innate beauty. The Shulamite is truly above them all, and they say so. What's he doing? He's flattering her again. Same thing. There's no one like you. You are first. Even the even the world admits it. Even the court women have given in and admitted that you're beyond them. Solomon, still looking at the Shulamite, says, you are first. Now watch these first. First by count. First by contrast. First by confession. And then first, too, by conquest. Look at verse 10. Who is she who looks forth as the morning? fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. What is he babbling about? The moon and the sun and an army with banners were all things that were greater than Solomon. So what is he saying? Here's what he's saying, that this great conqueror, Solomon, conqueror of women, the intellectual genius, which he was, the king of Israel, and the greatest man on earth at that time admits, he's admitting to having been conquered himself by the Shulamite. He's saying, you got me. I'm admitting it to you, but he is not saying, I love you. He is saying, my lust for you has conquered me. There was something about her he could not win over. For once, he had lost the game. You want the devil to say that about you and me? There's something in us he could not win over. There's something in us where he, he lost the game. Oh, I'll tell you, that moved me. I just had Holy Ghost bumps just now. 
I mean, we need to be the place where the devil comes knocking and, and he finds something in us that he can't win. He can't win us over. He can't seduce us away. He can't, he can't persuade us to go another direction because we are our beloved's and he is ours and his banner over us is love and we are not interested. That's the whole picture here. He's lost the game. We got to think here of the Shulamite as a picture of the church. And as the Shulamite reminded Solomon of things he could not personally conquer, Satan sees in God's people likewise that which he cannot conquer. And didn't Jesus tell us this? Listen, we got to know who we are. If we don't know who we are, then he's going to find a way to get at us. But when the church realizes who she is, then, oh man, our resistance to the enemy goes way up. Jesus placed his hand of anointing and power on us on the day of Pentecost. He promised that all the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, I know the church has made mistakes. I know it, I know it. Listen, I've been debating atheists on tweet, Twitter, or whatever it's called. I made a bunch of them mad at me. I've been having some hearty debates with some atheists. And I had to say to them, y'all are not good atheists. No, I'm serious. There was better atheists in the 1800s and 1900s. You know, I, I can name them. There were, there were atheists that could really give you a run for your money intellectually, and you had to really be ready for them. But the atheists around today, all they do is mock you and ridicule you because they don't really have an argument. What I said to them is this. I, listen, you can't talk me away. You can't win me away. You can't draw me away. I'm not even remotely interested to entering into the vacuum in which you live because I have met a Savior. I have met a shepherd, and he really is the love of my heart. Ben Johnson, Robert Ingersoll, they were good atheists. I mean, on the argument level. But Jesus said, even though the church makes mistakes, and the church has certainly, which those atheists always tell me about, the Crusades, the Inquisition, all these things, they bring it all out. But all they can ever really point out is the mistakes church folk have made. That's it. That's their argument. But even though the church has made mistakes, ultimately, the bride of Christ, the body of believers called the church, the blood-bought, redeemed, spirit-filled body of Christ... The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Though there have been assaults, though there have been attacks, though there have been failures, though there have been all these things, yet the church marches on, the church marches forward, and one day the church is going to be raptured up into glory by the power of the living God. The church will prevail because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Got to preach a little bit. Okay? Now, as Solomon had to admit that he had been conquered by the Shulamite, he says, man, I've given it my best, and she's won. So Satan must admit that he has been conquered by the true blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. Can we give God praise for that? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, next, we're going to, we see the Shulamite rebuffing the unseemly advances of Solomon. She doesn't take long. She says in verse 11, I went down to the grove of walnut trees to see the fruits of the valley, 
to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. You say, where's the rebuff in that? What is she talking about? I'm going to tell you. She's giving a testimony. See, see, he has hit her with all this artillery. Now she's saying, Solomon, let me give you my testimony. Let me show you where this all began. So here's what she says. Before I realized it, my strong... Oh, this is the rest of the verse. Before I realized it, my strong desires had taken me to the chariot of a nobleman. Okay, who's the, what's the chariot? Who's the nobleman? What is she talking about? Here it is. The Shulamite rejected Solomon's advances instantly and fully. After all this heavy-duty flattery and everything, she rejected it outright. She wasn't interested, and that's the best way to deal with temptation. If we toy with it, flirt with it, ponder it, or entertain it in our minds, down we go. When do you deal with temptation? Instantly. You don't debate with it or argue with it. You don't let it build a nest in your mind. You immediately shut it down because that's when you're the strongest. If you entertain it, dwell on it, ponder it, consider it, entertain it, think about it, with every passing minute, you're growing weaker. We learn from the Shulamite the way to deal with temptation is immediately and reject the temptation fully. Okay? As verses 11 and 12 reveal, she simply turned around and walked away. That's what she did. Now, what the Shulamite said in the, that strange verse we read was this. Solomon, let me tell you how this all happened. Let me tell you how I got in front of you like I am right now. I was attending my, minding my own business, going about my duties of inspecting the orchards and the vineyards. I, I was, as we read way earlier in the Song of Solomon, her brothers had put her to working in a vineyard. And so there I was in the orchards and the vineyards, and suddenly I found myself surrounded by the chariots of the nobility. Your chariots, Solomon, they came to me. I didn't come to them. They approached me. I wasn't looking for them. She continued, I was not out sightseeing, Solomon, hoping for a glimpse of you. Oh, wow, Solomon's in the area. Let me, let me see if I can go spot him and look at him and admire him. No, that's not what was going on at all. Such a thought was far from my mind, she says. I'm innocent of any curiosity about the presence in the country of a royal entourage. When your entourage came into my area, Solomon, I did not search you out. Now, folks, I want us to learn from her now. She wasn't hunting for sin. She went out looking for it. She wasn't surfing the web. She wasn't going into a singles ministry like it's a meat market. Thank you. <laughs> she wasn't out she wasn't yielding to inner uh, promptings to look for something wrong. She said, it came to me. Said, Solomon, I want you to know that. You're used to women running after you. But I want you to know I wasn't one of them. Okay? Get it, boy. I'm about to deflate your huge ego. I was not out to find you. That's what she's saying. 
I was simply going about my own business when all of a sudden I was swept up by some of your servants and my liberty was taken away from me. I came under attack. That's what happened, Solomon. So, so after all this flattery and all this you're first and all the flock of goats and all this other stuff, she said, let me tell you the truth. I ain't interested. I was never interested. In other words, I've never desired to meet you. I did not end up here by my own doings. You kidnapped me. You, your men brought me in front of you, and you think I'm going to fall at your feet and thank God that I'm number 141? I'm not interested, and I've never been interested. Your servants are the ones that stole me away against my will. And this is the Shulamite's way of telling Solomon that she wants nothing to do with him. Zip, zero, nada, nothing. Her rebuff of his advances couldn't be clearer. And again, we see the church here, and we can learn from her single-minded devotion to the shepherd. This is how you win. And you say, Pastor Jeff, I would love to have that kind of devotion but sometimes I just feel myself pulled away and, and lured away. And, and I wish I could say I was always in love with Jesus and overwhelmed with these feelings. But, Pastor Jeff, I'm not. There are times I feel as worldly as the world. There are times I feel weak. There are times I feel like, am I saved? I understand that. And I'm going to shoot straight with you, Okay. To, to be in love with Jesus takes and stay in love with Jesus takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes being in that word every day. It takes daily confession of sin. It takes keeping your heart clean. And if you don't keep your heart clean, it means confessing it to him. If you haven't kept your heart clean and keeping, keeping, listen, Never let yourself get further than 24 hours away from God. That's what I'm saying. And it's when you put yourself continually in his presence, the fire continues to burn. But you've got to do that. If you don't do that, if you get away, if you break away from your devotional time, if you get away from your daily time with God, I will drift. You will. Any of us will drift. It takes discipline and honesty with God. And I, there's nothing you can tell God that's going to shock him or surprise him or make him say, you have got to be kidding me. You? And now he knew before you said it. See, he, he doesn't need the confession. You do. You've got to keep the record clean. We all stumble. James assured us. We all stumble in many different ways. It's not, we're not teaching or preaching perfection up here. We're teaching honest pursuit of God. And you're going to fail and I'm going to fail. We all make mistakes. But this Shulamite, what she did in the heat of temptation, in the heat of assault, in the heat of the enemy right in her face, she kept her eyes on the shepherd. She bragged on the shepherd. She remembered the shepherd. She rehearsed the shepherd. She was shepherd-focused, and that's what I'm saying to you tonight. 
She did not have one foot in the world and the other in the kingdom. She didn't flirt with sin. Solomon, the seducer, responds to her. Now, I'm going to tell you, we're about to hear a desperate man. He, these are the words of a desperate man because he's thinking, oh my gosh, this really is the one that got away. I cannot win her. And I'm going to forewarn you, what is in this is in the word of God. I'm just going to read it to you. But now he's freaking out. His ego is in major trouble here. He, he, look and listen to him. Return, return to us, O maid of Shulamite. Well, where is she gone? That she's got to return. He knows he's lost her. Come back, come back, that we may see you again, he says. And this is the first time Solomon calls her the Shulamite. First time. And it's also the first time the name is mentioned in the entire song, that she's called a Shulamite. Now, let me tell you what that means. It's generally believed that Shulam is the same as Shunem, a village that was just north of Jezreel, and it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. That's where her name came from. Calling to her, following her rebuff, was yet another appeal of this seducer to draw her away in unfaithfulness. Please note with me, he's like the devil. The devil doesn't give up easily. Have you ever noticed that? The devil doesn't give up easily. I was reading in my devotional. I've been reading about how the children of Israel took over the promised land. And several times it speaks of certain Philistine nations. And it says this of them. When the children of Israel came to kick them out, it says, let's say the Amorites. The Amorites were determined to not leave. And the Israelites ended up not taking them, but putting them into subservience to slavery because they were just dead set determined not to be kicked out. And the devil's just that way. There are times in your walk with God, in your spiritual warfare, you're going to come up against a demon like that. Or a, a, and I say a demon. I'm not saying you're possessed. Christians aren't. But I'm saying a battle, a, a, an enemy like that who is going to look at you and say, I am determined not to leave your life. And you've got to say, well, you may be determined, but I've got another one inside of me who's more determined than you that you are going to leave my life. So there's some battles that are going to take some blood, sweat, and tears out of you. And here comes the devil again, Solomon, to lead her astray. Just like he did Jesus in the wilderness, he attacked Jesus several times over and over and over until it finally it says, he left until an opportune time. So he left for the moment, but he didn't leave for good. Now, starting in chapter 7, Solomon resumes his temptations, hoping for an opportune moment to win the battle against her. He now, we're going to see him dropping all pretense, and he's going to come at her with unblushing boldness. If he couldn't win her now, he knows he's lost for good. So he begins with a bold, sensual description of the Shulamite. Here's what he says, verses 1 through 5, chapter 7. Now he starts with the feet. <laughs> How beautiful are your feet in sandals? Any girls ever had that? Now this guy has got lines I've never heard. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter? The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a skillful workman, your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. I don't know what that means. 
and I don't want to know what that means. <laughs> All right. Your, your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin. Your nose, what a nose. It's like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. This is going to be good on radio because you guys are mic'd. All right. Your, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. I know some ladies that could say, amen, my hair is purple. <laughs> a, king is held, a king is held captive by your tresses. Now, folks, this is full on. Pedal to the metal, attack. Her feet, her thighs, her navel, her waist, her breasts, her neck, her eyes, her nose, her head, and her hair are all praised. It's like a machine gun of flattering words that are coarse, crude, and sensual. But I want you to notice something. Not one word about her character. Please catch that. Not a whisper about the great woman she is on the inside. And this woman is great on the inside. She's a great woman. His whole focus is physical and lust-driven. Do you catch that? Did, did he say anything about her patience, her love, her, her gentleness, her uh, loyalty, her, her faithfulness? Did he say anything about character at all? Nothing. It's all outside. He cares nothing for her as a person, only for what she looks like. And believe me, that kind of focus isn't going to last into old age. Because beauty fades, handsomeness fades, looks fade. Just look at some of the movie stars that were hot property in the 60s. You go, oh, what happened to you? Seriously. Or just look at one of these with makeup, without makeup things. I'm sorry, ladies, but... So... This, this focus, she's not going to be number 141 for long. There's going to be a 142 and three. She's just there for the moment to satiate his lust. Now, next we see Solomon's outright burning desire for the Shulamite. He senses he will not have her, so words more desperate gush out. Look at verse 6. Oh, how beautiful you are. How pleasing, my love. How full of delights. You are slender like a palm tree. Your breasts are like the clusters of fruit. The, the mask is off as Solomon is exposed as a passion-driven man burning with the torturous fire, and I mean torturous, of inner lust. He's enslaved on the inside. Okay? He goes on to say, I said, in verse 8 and 9, I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. This guy is getting carnal. He's getting nasty. 
I mean, this woman has never even been with him. Listen to him. He's making a fool of himself. Notice the I wills. I will go up. I will take hold. I will get what I want is the sense of it. He made up his mind to seize her by force. Why? Because he could. Now here is laid out for us the stark difference between love and lust. Catch this carefully because we're in a lust-driven world. We're in a pornographic culture. We're in a porn nation. Lust is the driving force of America, not love. So here's the difference. We can see it in Solomon. Love can wait. Lust can't. Lust won't. Love does not insist on its own way. Lust always does. Always. If you love me, you will. If you love me, you wouldn't ask. <laughs> love thinks of the other. Lust never thinks of the other. Lust only thinks of itself. That's Solomon. You know what? We're done for tonight because next time we're going to talk about the Shulamite's fidelity because even this last attack fails. Can we stand together? How many of you hate it to end? Seriously. It, it, we could just go on, but this is enough for us to really think about. Now, let me ask you a question as we start to close. Do you see the Shulamite as a picture of the church and how we're to respond to the tempter, how we're to keep our eyes on the shepherd, and how when we're under attack, we shut it down and walk away and give no open door to the enemy? Okay? Father, we thank you right now for your goodness tonight. Thank you for this beautiful picture, this Shulamite, a picture of your precious blood-bought church. Beautiful in your beauty. Beautiful in your anointing. Beautiful on the inside with the character of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. And we just lift our hands to the Lord and just say with me, Lord, help me to be like this Shulamite. To be faithful and true to you. To turn away from the world's temptations. To refuse a flattering tongue. And to know that I am first with you. And that's all I need. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Go ahead. Let's sing. Let's sing, Carlito. Let's sing just one stanza, and then we'll go tonight. Thank you.